Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Kevin shares his story coming out of West Point. We learn why he was interested in serving in the military, how many tours he did in Afghanistan, why he started his MBA online while serving, and how he was able to land a role in private equity on a deal origination team. Enjoy. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Uh, of course, Pat. Thanks for having me. So it'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary bio. Sure. So I am a bit older than most people in my position right now, but that was because I served in the military for 10 years prior. So I was at West Point until uh, right around 2010. And after that, I joined the Army. I was in the infantry for five years where I deployed for a handful of times there and then was in Special Forces in the last couple of years where I deployed a couple more times as well. Uh, all five trips being to Afghanistan uh, f- until about 2019, where I hung up the boots and then decided to move uh, into private equity. So that was uh, 30 seconds of the last <laughs> 12 years of my life, but that, <laughs> that, is, that is the highest level I can I like it. No, I, I like it. I asked for a short summary. So there you go. <laughs> so let's go all the way back to West Point. I guess, well, even maybe before then, tell me, were you thinking, you know, military since when? When was your thought of like, you know, obviously, because you're at West Point, you knew you were going to go into it. So tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, West Point kind of became a thing when I was in high school, a junior year in high school. I actually have a pretty poignant story where I saw the Saddam statue get pulled down. And uh, I was in my house with my dad and his friends, and they were hooting and hollering about how the Saddam statue came down. And I was like a petulant 16-year-old at the time. And uh, I said, you know, what, what did we do here? Because we're all in the family room not doing anything. And I thought to myself, well, if that's really what you think, then maybe you should, you know, put your money where your mouth is and go serve. And so as I thought about that, I said, well, if you want to serve and you want to be a patriot and that's what you think is important, then go join the military. But then I had another thought of, well, I still think an education is important. So how do I get an education and join the military? And that's when I Googled military education and found, you know, West Point, Annapolis and Air Force Academy and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, Tell me a little bit about that. So like the, I know there's like, uh, there's obviously different divisions and all that. So what, what made you think, so you started applying what, like your junior year, it's tough to get in, right? It's a pretty, or it's a pretty intense, like rig- rigorous curriculum and everything, right? Or- yeah, it's, well, it's tough. Um, it's tough because there's a lot of like kind of broad hurdles that you need to reach. You need to have like a certain qualification of leadership skills, a certain academic performance. But I think the real hurdle is you need a congressional appointment. Whereas like your congressman or your senator, they have a certain number of slots that they can give candidates to go apply to West Point. And so 
that's where the real bottleneck is, is applying to get one of those funds. How do you do that? Yeah, I, th I mean, you, uh, you tell them you want to go to West Point or Annapolis, and then you interview. And I'm trying to remember the interview questions, but it's essentially like an interview of like your moral character of like, hey, you know, does this guy have grit? Is he going to quit? Because that looks bad. Yeah. And then, you know, if, if he does make it through, is this someone that we want to put our name behind? So I just remember, I remember there being some like ethical questions of saying, you know, if you catch your friend lying or cheating, you know, what would you do and how would you go about it? And you're supposed to say you'll turn them in. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I said that. I think I said, uh, <laughs> I think I said, hey, I wouldn't turn them in uh, because it's not my place. And I think that raised some eyebrows. And then they said, well, what would you do? And I, I think I followed up with, well, I'd give him the opportunity to turn himself in. And they like, like the air came back into the room and they're like, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So you get that, you get the approval you apply, you get in, it's like no brainer. Like, you know, you're going there for sure. Or did you consider other more traditional schools? No, it was sort of an, uh, it wasn't a no brainer. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get into uh, West Point or Annapolis. And so I had some ROTC scholarships as well in the, in, in case, you know, in case I didn't make it to the top two, but yeah, I was pretty set on serving in some form or fashion, hopefully through either West Point or an ROTC program. So, okay. So you start going through, and I see your economics major, um, Chinese as well. So what's the thought process there? N you know, is there a finance degree there or, uh, is it all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like the economic side of it. Yeah. Um, it I was, was an economics major too. So like, I'm all about it. But yeah. Tell me about like the thought process of like majoring and how like your first few years there, obviously there's not the traditional internships that, that like other, other kids have. So what, what do you do like year round? Is it just training? Like most, like when you're out, out of school like in the summer and stuff yeah you don't get a lot of freedom um by design for the first for the first couple of years so it's usually heavy military training in the summer yep. and then heavy academic training with some military training sprinkled in throughout the academic year uh, and then that's sort of rinse and repeat for the four years that you're there so you don't get a lot of like there is no internships right. the the one freedom that i did have which is why you'll see the chinese on there was they had a semester abroad program where you could go live abroad for a semester. And uh, one of them was in China. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, but they said, hey, in order to do that, you have to major in the language because we're not just gonna let anybody go to hang out in China for a semester. I was like, oh, shucks. Uh, but then I looked at it and I was like, man, I've already taken some Chinese at West Point. And if I go there and I completely focus on Chinese, I can finish my major over there and then come back and get back to econ. And so that's, kind of what happened, whereas I was able to meet the requirements to become a Chinese major, go abroad, and then come back and then finish my path on economics. Where in China were you? Uh, Jilin Dashui. And I apologize for anyone who speaks uh, Chinese because th those tones weren't there and they never will be again, I don't think. Uh, but it is about three hours north of Beijing. And yeah. so I was there for four months. And what was that like? Uh, it, a little more freedom or no? A lot of freedom. Yeah, okay. it was. Uh, it was probably like the one of the cooler things uh, that the army did for me, uh, the army's done a lot of good things for me, but that was a cool one. I was, I mean, I was like 20 years old. And as it was, inter as it was, as a message was delivered to me, they essentially said, Hey, here is, you know, here's a check for $6,000. You have, you know, this is going to get you by for four months. You can spend as little or as much of it as you want. You're not getting any more. And we're not going to ask you to fill out a receipt. So 
it was like really it was very much big boy rules back then and uh it was kind of cool to have the freedom that came with it especially being 20 years old and especially like coming from west point which is like a jail you know? you're halfway through the four months and think oh oh shit like i'm running <laughs> like what happened no, was, it, it, was it plenty it was plenty. No, it was great it was great um i mean i don't I mean, at 20 years old, you don't need to be like, I'm sure you're like, didn't get, you didn't really care. Like, right. Like you're just yeah, like, you don't, I'll yeah, stay no. at this in this studio or whatever and pay nothing. <laughs> yeah. And the dollar went, and the dollar went far. Uh, yeah. So it was good for travel and it was good for expenses. And I mean, you really had to spend money if you were to kind of let that go in four months, because a lot of your, like your housing's paid for, you're going to school. It's not like. Yeah. So what, what did you spend it on? Just food and like travel a little bit and that's it. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're supposed to travel and food uh, yeah. and, and go out a little bit. Like you're supposed to, they want you to immerse in the culture. And so I'm trying to remember what the, what the vacation times were, but it was pretty, it was pretty nice for a four month trip. It was like one 10 day break, like two, six day breaks, like two or three, four day breaks. And that was to go visit different parts of the country. That's cool. And how's your, how's your Chinese now? Oh, awful. Awful. Well, to sure, Cohen, which is my name is Kevin. That's, that's, all, that's all I remember. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, so you're kind of coming up junior year, senior year. And what's your thought here? What's the, what's the typical, um, you know, thought process or coming out of, out of West Point? So it's like, are you start specializing? What's the, you know, can you finish West Point or like, what's the requirements after that in terms of like, what are you required to do after going? Uh, so West Point's very much like a, it's a rack and stack meritocracy. So they evaluate every cadet based off of their academic, physical, and military performance. Yeah. And then they really rank they they legitimately rank number one student versus number thousand student. And what's the weight? What's the weighting on physical versus academic? I think it's thirty percent. It, it might have changed since then. I think it was sixty percent academic, thirty percent physical. That's what I'd guess. Yeah. And ten percent military. I think something like that. Military being like military knowledge and history and stuff like that. No, <laughs> no uh, like oh, just following everything like to the yeah, T and was, being clean, yeah, <laughs> like not being insubordinate and like saluting the right cadets at the right time and like right, saying right. the right words and like having a nice uniform and stuff. Like it was more like military bearing, less of like you know, yeah, who charged the hill in 1860? Yeah, got it, got it. Okay, so where where was your rank? Uh, I was okay. I was. Like ten, like near ten percent, maybe maybe just south of it. Um, but sorry, the point was top ten, top ten percent. Uh, yeah, I think I was right around there. Um, nice. that's great. The uh, but really the the point behind it is because uh, what happens with that rank is that there's two nights. There's uh, branch night and post night, and branch night is all the available spots in the army that you can go pursue a profession. So if you want to go be a pilot, there's ten slots for pilot. There's twenty slots for infantry, thirty slots for whatever. And so if you're number one uh, uh, in the list, you get the pick of the litter. You get to pick whatever you want to do in the army as long as there's a spot there. But as you fall down the list, the most exciting spots go away and you start to fall into the spot or for needs of the army. And so that's where when you ask, you know, how are you thinking about specializing in, at the army? It depends on where you fell rank wise. Sometimes you're thinking about specialization. Other times you're thinking about, oh. I guess I'll just end up. What are the most desirable kind of uh, specialty stats? Sorry, this is my own. Uh, no, this is great. Selfish, yeah, yeah. selfish uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. curiosity. <laughs> uh, so. I promise, guys, we'll get to the finance stuff later. <laughs> the most limited slots are usually aviation and then like a doctor. Um, the doctor is a bit of a one-off because you do have to do some 
like doctor training at like some medical training at school at West Point. So you're kind of on track for that one to begin with. But in terms so of the greater being population, a pilot for but for the army, not for the air. Yeah, yeah, like a helicopter pilot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yep. so um, okay, so what did you want to do? What was your? Would you have been a pilot, or could you be a pilot? Uh, I think it was open. I picked infantry. I um, so 2000, I got out 2010. Yeah, I got you know out of, the, out of West Point in 2010, and that time was very much sort of Afghanistan and Iraq. Eh, Iraq was starting to wind down. It was very much Afghanistan. So a lot of people were, were looking to kind of test their metal or to get a combat experience. And so infantry was kind of the soup du jour of the time to try and uh, get a slot there so you could go overseas and, and experience the thing that you trained for. So that was usually the thinking behind a lot of people at West Point was, hey, how do I get on a combat rotation? Got it. So infantry was uh, highly desired just because like there was something going on with Afghanistan, you could actually get deployed. Yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. Got it. Okay. And so that happened. So like, you know, you were able to, to get that and then right away were you immediately deployed or like how did, what happened when you graduated? Yeah. So uh, that was branch night and then post night is the same thing that happens, but now it's, now it's locations within the army. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, so you can see, you can marry up the locations with the units there and yep. see which units are on the patch chart to go deploy. So you're kind of trying to angle yourself to get to a unit that's deploying. And uh, I was able to do that. I selected Germany, and that unit was forward deployed. So when I went to the German unit, uh, essentially dropped my bags off, and then met them in Afghanistan for the final six months of their tour. And then uh, after that tour, that unit actually deactivated, and I was sent back to the States. And while I went back to the States, I joined the 82nd, which is an airborne unit, which was forward deployed to Afghanistan. So I dropped my bags off, went back over there, finished three months with them, and then came back and was at Fort Bragg for a couple more months until finding another opportunity to deploy again and then deployed for a third time. What? Is that normal? <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Three times? It's, it's, not, it's not normal to do it that quickly. Yeah. It was a bit of, I mean, there was some luck. There was a lot of luck involved there. Like not everyone unit deactivates like that. So my unit deactivated, which gave me another shot. And then on that third deployment, I was given sort of like an individual augmentee opportunity that not a lot of people get either. And so those two, those two events allowed me to deploy when others might not have been able to. Sure. Okay. So you're kind of, you're there for a third time and you're, um, you're in pretty serious situations. It sounds like pretty scary situations. It's from time to time, but um, are you, you know, what's, what's the worst stuff that happened? I mean, obviously really horrible stuff happened, I'm sure. But like, was it something where you were able to, I'm looking at you cause I'm looking at like all the places you've been. It's like year and a half here, two years here. I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Like <laughs> you're in the 80s. So let's start with 82nd airborne. So like, what were you doing specifically there? And like, how did it, how did things evolve? Like with each deployment, like, were you given more, a, a lot more leadership? I think this is relevant because it's kind of like similar to just any sort of career in the yeah. sense of like, you're expected to start leading probably faster in the army than, than a normal career. But like, I'm curious how things shifted from like, you know, maybe because you were from West Point, you were already thrown into a leadership position right away, but I'm curious about that. So the first tour, probably best, to, probably easiest to talk about them in terms of tours. Sure. The first tour, I was a platoon leader where I was um, kind of responsible for 30 men. And we had that first deployment together where we didn't see any combat. We were in a combat theater, but we didn't see any combat. And so when we came back, uh, I still wanted to test my mettle and, and see how we, you know, how personally I would do. 
and had that opportunity to, to be a platoon leader again for the 82nd. Uh, and at that point, uh, did see combat with that unit. It was another 30-man element, more or less, uh, in southern Afghanistan. And it was during that experience where I started thinking about uh, special forces. And there was a pretty, I'll try and keep it quick, there was a pretty vivid moment where I remember we were kind of setting up this checkpoint for uh, a partner force to occupy. And we were waiting, there was a bit of a delay for a handover. And so we were securing the compound for a week or two weeks at a time before the handover happened. And yeah. within that gap, they had seated uh, improvised explosive devices within the compound and we didn't know it. And so as we were about to do the opening ceremony, we were, we were kind of doing minesweepers before it to see if, you know, just to double check. And then we found one, we're like, oh, this isn't a good sign. And so we had to, we had to clean, the, we had to clear the rest of it. And as I was watching one of the guys minesweep through part of the compound, I was kind of taking a knee and I was just like watching him do it. And one of the Afghan, one of the Afghan counterparts came up to me and was like, give me this look. And I was like, Hey man, it's like hundred degrees outside. What's going on? Like, I don't, I don't really need to deal with this right now. And he was like, no, like move. And so I stood up and I moved over and he bent down and he moved out the sand and I was, I had taken a knee on an IED and it just didn't go off. And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, so as I was walking, I mean, that like kind of like opened your eyes a little bit. And so as I was walking back, uh, I thought to myself, man, if I, if my life isn't like that much a harm's way, if it's more, if it's in a more dangerous situation than I accurately see, I would like to control that scenario as much as I can to have the autonomy and the responsibility to influence that environment. And that's when I thought, because I liked what I was doing. And that's when I thought, oh, I think special forces does something like that. And that's when I started looking at that, that avenue. Cool. Awesome. So you kind of got back and then how do you even do that? How do you even look into special forces? Just like another set you supply and it's another tough tough to get in kind of thing and you gotta yeah it's probably like probably, <laughs> probably for like uh yeah it's like private equity right it's like it's like the top one percent of one percent right good um, pitch. yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that like uh, how did you you know you don't have to tell me about the, you know what you did but just just applying getting in and like did more physical more kind of all that stuff or how, you have to survive like uh i know like obviously the most famous is the seals and everything and they get yeah they do but i'd love to hear about it um, so the initial way to do, so you cannot apply as an officer, you can't apply until you have served a certain amount of time in the conventional army. And it's sort of like, Hey, we need to make sure you can perform. Yeah. And by the way, this is, this is how many years after you, you had already gone through after the third tour, this is what, how many years in after, after graduating after the third tour, I'm five years in five years in. So yep. there's another almost five years, right. Of yeah. doing, doing stuff. So like in the special forces. Um, or, you know, as a student too, um, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. There's a gap there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a two year gap of training. Um, but the, yeah, so to apply, you, you submit, you almost submit like a resume equivalent of saying like, Hey, I'd like to apply. Do you accept me to go to, you know, to go to tryouts? Essentially you're like asking to join tryouts. Yeah. And so if you're, it's, this is a, it's a paper look pretty much. And if you meet the paper qualifications, then you'll be, you'll be invited to go try out. And then that's a three-week selection process, which is primarily physical tests, uh, land navigation tests, and then a team test, which is uh, the team test is sort of the one that's like a bit ambiguous, but they, they put you in teams and then they try and help, they try and have you do like these physically demanding tasks over long periods of time. And they want to see how you work together as a team. So move this, I don't know, X hundred number of pounds from 
this location to 12 kilometers from here and figure out how to do it. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll figure it out. And so they're just trying to see how you're going to handle that situation. Um, so at the end of those three weeks, depending on how you do, you'll say, hey, you've been selected or hey, you haven't been selected. And if you have been selected, you will then join the qualification course. And the qualification course is essentially a two-year course where then you learn more of the technical aspects of what it means to be a, a Green Bray. Oh, and so um, from there, kind of you were, you were actually deployed again or with that group, or how did that work? So you, uh, so you, you, got, you got accepted, you made it. Yep. First off, um, low acceptance rate, I assume. But so then what? Then what? So after you graduate the qualification course, then you go to your unit. There's a, there's, I don't know, five units within special forces, more or less. And so one, and they're regionally aligned. And so I went to one that was regionally aligned to South America, but we actually had a mission set in Afghanistan. So, uh, although we were regionally aligned in South America, I ended up going back to Afghanistan. Okay. And at this point now, now I'm a team leader, uh, which is a bit of a different responsibility than what I was beforehand, which was a platoon leader. So now I'm in charge of 30 people, uh, I'm 12 people. And each of those 12 people have a specific skill set. And our job is to go partner with uh, kind of more trained forces in a foreign nation and then help them get across the objective with a, with a smaller U.S. footprint. Got it. Got it. And at any stage during any of this, are you thinking private equity? <laughs> no. <laughs> so tell me, tell me when does that come in? You know, had finance, I mean, economics major, but had even investment banking or private equity, any of this stuff, did you even know what this stuff was? No. So when private equity started to come into focus was my fifth deployment. I was in a compound in Northern Afghanistan and a classmate of mine or uh, a rugby buddy of mine, uh, he was a helicopter pilot and he was flying in to drop off supplies or do something. And we had lunch while, uh, while he was in and he was like, Hey man, I hear you might be getting out. You know, what are you trying to do? And I said, to be honest, I, you know, I love what I'm doing now. Like I love being part of a small team that goes in, that shares the burden with a partner force that helps, that helps share their risk, get them across an objective and leave them in a better position than I found them. I was like, I love doing that. I was like, but I don't know. I was like, the problem with the army is I don't know what the 10 years look like. I don't know if my last 10 years look like my next 10 years or if I never do this again. And so what I'm trying to do is figure out a way to do that in business or in corporate America. And he goes, hey, I don't think I know what I'm talking about because I'm a helicopter pilot but I think I know a guy who does something like that and it's called private equity and maybe, maybe you should talk to him. And I said, okay, it sounds great. And so that was when it first started to kind of appear. And so you weren't like actively networking or anything like this, like talking to alum or anything like that, or, be, or did you, did you did that once you had that conversation? So you had that conversation. He put you in touch with this person who was in private. So tell me about that. Yep. Tell me about that conversation. Yeah. So I was still deployed at the time. And some of this is serendipitous. Like I was deployed at the time I came back to, uh, my home station, the the person I was connected with, he only lived like an hour and a half east of me. And so he said, hey, let's grab breakfast and let's talk about what you're thinking about. And at that point, I, know I was thinking about private equity and I was also thinking about um, a search fund uh, because it kind of married up with what I was trying to do of like stay in front of teams and lead teams and and look for a business that I could sort of grow and develop. Yeah, um, yeah. And so he was kind of sort of like an informal mentor for about nine months where he was trying to help me navigate that world. So it was very much, it was less of like, hey, I want to break into PE. How do I do it? And it was more of, hey, these are the things I really liked in my past life. You know, how would I, how do you think I could do something like this? But how did you, so when you finally came back, mm -hmm. was it just because 
finished the, the mission had finished and all of that, or yes. was it something where it was just done? So uh, basically, it was like 2019, right? Yep. So I yep. So I came back about February 2019. Yeah. And then I had I had known I was getting out at this point, so I had about eight or nine months left in the army. And at that point, I was I had already started my MBA because I was I was confident that I wanted to get out, but I was unconfident that I'd be able to speak the language after I got out. And so I wanted to get an MBA quickly mm -hmm. uh, or, or in parallel with me transitioning because I want to be able to speak the language or be able to understand the landscape I was entering into. Right. So you, you had already kind of started the MBA online, correct? While you were. Yes. Yep. So tell me about that. Like, how are you getting an MBA while deployed? Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I could have done it twice. Like I remember it was, uh, it, things just kind of worked out at, at, at some points. I remember having to take a test online. You had to submit a test and it had to be in video so they see you weren't lying or see you weren't cheating. Uh, and if the connection broke, then you failed to submit the test. And I remember coming in late from a mission and we came in at like 1030 at night and I had until midnight to submit it. And so I was running to my Connex to like get my little Wi-Fi puck up to yeah. submit the test and hope that like the, the power didn't go out in the hour that I had to submit it. Um, it worked. It, it worked. Yeah. I, I got whatever grade I need to get for that, for that test and moved on. Um, but no, it wasn't easy. I mean, but the nice thing is that with remote work, it is more flexible than being on campus, obviously. Yeah. And so you're, and then, so you, when you came back, you were able to actually finish up on campus. Yep. Yeah. So as, as, as I was getting out of the military, I had like vacation days is kind of the equivalent. I had vacation days built up. And so yeah. I was able to go finish on campus and at, uh, I went to Florida state at Florida state. Why, why Florida State for your MBA? Uh, because it was, it, well, first they provided a, a full remote MBA. Uh, it, was, it was fairly reputable. And if something poorly happened where I had to go on campus to like resolve my case or like make a stand, uh, it was within driving distance. So I was like, okay, with those three factors. Oh, and I think <laughs> this was a consideration too. I didn't have to retake my GRE or DMAT. If you showed that you were a professional, uh, they would waive the GMAT GRE, which is ahead of its time. So I think that's more of a thing now. So yeah. Yeah. Had you thought about, because a lot of people with military backgrounds, a lot will go to like try to go to like a top business school and go to banking. Like, had you talked to anybody from, from those schools or had you networked or it was more like this was 2016 or something when you were applying? You still were pretty, you know, junior, I'd say. You were 20. Well, you're 28 at the time. Yeah. So tell me about that. Like the decision, I, it sounds like you had those, those reasons, but had you talked to people like it were in different careers and stuff like that, like in private equity, you hadn't talked to anybody in private equity and you know, like nothing. No. So you're just like, I need to learn business language in general. If I want to be in corporate America. Yes. And, I, and I thought when I was like self-assessing, I thought one of my weaknesses would be age. I said, Hey, I'm going into the world at 31. 31 is when I got out. I'm going in the world at 31 with no industry relevant experience. And if I go to a top tier MBA while I'm getting MBA experience, I'm not getting any more industry experience than I would have had otherwise. So in a sense, I was looking at it and saying, okay, I spend X you amount of more money. Done. You, when you got back, you wanted to be done and go. Yeah. Well, I want to get an industry. So I could at least start building, accumulating that experience and start mitigating that weakness. Got it. Okay. So, so you got the MBA, you came back, got the MBA, yep. graduated. Yep. And what was the, like, right after that, what did you, what did you do? Were you, were you applying to roles kind of in that, that last six months and how were you approaching things then? Yeah. So the, 
at that point, <laughs> I was networking hard, and that yeah. was that was when Wall Street Oasis came came into the fold. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as part of the sort of hey, I need to catch up to speed. And once someone said, hey, this is private equity, I think this is what you're interested in. I started diving into it and saying, hey, is this something that would be interesting to me? Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of it did line up at the high level. Like a lot of it's investing and navigating uncertainty, and that was sort of the world I came from. It was just under different context. And um, so I remember one of the and I think one of the pitches on Wall Street Oasis is like, or one of the pieces of advice is like network, like do two calls a week and like make sure yeah. you do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that pays dividends because at, at the end of my time at Florida State and in the Army, uh, because of primarily networking, I had, I had more or less four opportunities in front of me. One was uh, from recruiter and then three of them were from networking. Uh, two of them being from just networking through like my own West Point network or through my own military network. Yeah. And then one of them also through the military network, but uh, I think it also helped that I was going to some of these like transition courses that they have for military people. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Stanford Ignite or the Commit Foundation. So yeah. Stanford, Stanford Ignite's like an entrepreneurial, it's like a four week entrepreneurial course that That's helps. Cool. Yeah. That helps military people understand business and like, Hey, if you want to start your own business, come to Stanford for a month and we'll kind of show you the ropes. Um, so that was kind of cool in that people look at that because it, that is a bit of a, they screen that a little bit too, to see who can go to that. So that's a nice sort of point of validity of like, okay, he had some sort of, you know, yeah. he's not just a guy who wants to talk about private equity. Um, and then the commit foundation, which I thought did a really good job was understanding your story or understanding your narrative. Like what is a story that everyone has a story to tell, but not everyone tells it well. And so they did a good job of saying, Hey, there are reasons that, drove you to make the decisions that you did in your life. And all you have to do is communicate that. And for the people that resonate with it, we'll kind of, we'll, we'll stick our neck out for you or yeah. we'll take a, we'll take a bet on you, not stick your neck out, but we'll take a bet on you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So did you feel like, okay, so with those opportunities was, I mean, private equity seemed like it was there, but were you applying to anything else like corporate finance? What, what other roles were you looking at? Oh, uh, one was still the search fund path. One was uh, an associate for a VC what, firm. What's your thought of the search fund? It's super popular now for MBAs. Like, yeah. Any any anecdotes or like data on like if that's success? Like, what what is the failure rate of that? Like, I think it's pretty high. Um, yeah, I think one. I mean, when I was looking at it heavily a couple of years ago, I think it was like one third kind of get it kind of get it done. And but I think since then, a lot more people have entered. So it would not surprise me if that number is lower. Yeah, it's interesting because it's super hard to get a transaction done just in general. Like that could be your your two years of like your life trying to get that that first deal done, right? So, uh, and that was sort of like some of my concerns was yeah knowing that I had a two year sort of deadline to get it done. Yeah, uh, and also if I was to self assess, you know, I had no professional network that would help me navigate that, and you know, I could I could write a military operation on a map, but I could not have told you like what an investable opportunity looks like, like quickly. And so I thought, man, those are two pretty big weaknesses to have a two-year deadline that I need to meet. And so, uh, you know, that kind of made me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. So that kind of put the search fund on the side, you know, on the side, was there, yeah. there's also compensation considerations, right? It's like, you know, you can go do that and have like very high volatility of great outcome or very little or nothing um, at the end of it. So was that part of your thought process? Like, Hey, let me get some, let me get a good salary and decent bonus. What was the thought process there? Uh, it was more, I was thinking more of like extreme down, like the downside scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I, I was less concerned about like, you know, this was a salary I think I deserve. Like I, I didn't really look at it that way. I looked at it more of, Hey, I went, I did this full-time remote MBA, which isn't, it is not indicative of a top tier MBA. So someone might see this guy and go, okay, he did well in the military. Uh, he did this remote MBA. That's interesting. And then he spent two years looking for a company and didn't find one. Yeah. And so now he's, now he's 35 from a road MBA with no industry experience. And now, you know, and now I'm less appealing than I was yeah. a couple of years ago. And so that was one of my big concerns was you can start seeing this downward. You could potentially start seeing these dots of going toward the downward trend. So, okay. So that's the search fund. So that, that made that was like, eh, not so, so interesting. Well, so what were the other opportunities again? So it, it was to work for a VC firm. Mm-hmm. which would be more on like the, the deal side, I think, if I was equated to the PE. And then, uh, and then this opportunity that I'm currently in. And then there was one where I would have been like a, um, a chief of staff for like a CEO or like it almost like an aide of some sorts. Interesting. For what kind of company? Uh, it was a manufacturing company. It was like a holding company of a bunch of manufacturing companies. Kind of interesting. Uh, so you decided to take the PE role. I did. Smartly. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't turn down that. And so tell me about that in terms like what type of role is it within the P fund? Um, Tell me about like what your day to day is like and has your anything translated from your previous life now to the corporate corporate world? I'm sure the answer is yes, but just what specifically? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm on the business development team for a private equity firm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we are primarily responsible for, sourcing opportunities uh, for the firm. And at a certain time, we hand those opportunities off to the deal side. So that is sort of my responsibilities is to manage uh, or to interact with a certain tier of intermediaries and and uh, cultivate those relationships while I'm in the seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, how that converts from my previous life, it... I mean, it's obviously still very, di- it's very different. <laughs> well, it's very different. I mean, you're, I'm kind of, you know, to a degree, I'm starting over again, right? Like, so yeah. there is, that, that is the nature of it. So I am starting over again. Um, I think one of the things that maybe, maybe it is different from maybe some of my counterparts is I'm less, and I don't, maybe, this, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I'm less transactionally focused. Like I care more about what the person is saying across from me and trying to understand what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it and how I can help them. And I think that that genuine interest in them plus my unique background makes the conversations feel more authentic mm-hmm. than, you know, the next white guy in a blazer with a collared shirt. Cause that is, you know, we, we do look a lot, the same, a lot of us look the same when you go to a, an M&A event. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so are you, uh, are you specifically like day to day, are you on the phone a lot? Are you traveling to like, well, now maybe hopefully traveling more and, and meeting face to face, but what, what's the day-to-day look like for sort for a sourcing role in PE? Cause I know there's like, there's, there's some well-known shops like, you know, the summit and the TAs of the world or multi-billion dollar funds. And they're, it's like a, you know, a system where they're, they expect their associates to be, you know, on the phone, hitting the phones all the time to uh, the cool part about the, those programs is they do actually let them kind of stay through the deal. Like if you source a deal and you get to stay on it and actually do the whole transaction, sounds like you guys have a team that's specialized in the transaction. So are you building relationships that kind of continue for the ones that you do source that close or how, how does that work? Yeah, it's sort of, it, there's a trade-off to it. 
So we, we do not follow that opportunity to close. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the trade-off is you don't get some of those experiences that you would get on the deal side. Like if you were, if you're trying to get reps at modeling and yeah. uh, I don't know, if you're trying to get deals on your resume, yeah. you know, that, you know, the, this role would not work for you because you won't be able to do that. Yeah. What it does allow you to do is it sort of maximizes your flexibility or your optionality. Like the time, the time is my own to learn what I want and to set up the calls that I want and to travel when I want. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it allows you to sort of pursue your own curiosity. And it'll, and so what that means for me is that I travel a lot and the travel schedule is agreed upon by the rest of my team, but you get to travel essentially where you want to, to foster relationships that you want. And then you get to mingle with other private equity shops or other intermediaries. And so you get an exposure outside of just the firm that you're in, which I think is valuable. So why are you meeting with other private equity shops? Cause you do co-invest and stuff like that with them or, or? no, it more just, you know, some of the events, some, some of the industry events yeah. that you go to, yeah, yeah, you just end up finding them. And it's not, you'd think that, oh, uh, you know, I see Bubble Bar there, like he's a competitor. It's, it's kind of less like that because, yeah. uh, as you know, you know, the top of the funnel is not the place where you get competitive. It's, it's usually way, way further back uh, when people start kind of posturing. And yeah. so at, at the top end, it's very collaborative of saying, you know, hey, does this make sense for you? Does this make sense for me? You know, how can we help each other out? So this is almost like it's a little bit of like a sales role, right? Where you're trying to sell your specific fund on like what, how they're unique and the value they can bring. Do you feel like, I mean, to me, it's obvious what the exits of this are, you know, you could of course stay along and keep growing with the, with the fund, or you could exit to probably any sales role or anything related to, is it, has that gone through your mind in terms of like the skills you're developing and how that could potentially protect that downside like because everyone always needs to sell right have you thought about that at all so i think like is that one of the reasons you took you took the role or is it just because like it was it was an obvious choice given the other options uh for me two of the reasons were one i already mentioned where i i didn't feel like i had a good sense of how to invest and i know being at this role part of my role is evaluating opportunities that come each week based off of my intermediaries yeah the relationships that i foster and and that is through the confidential information memorandum level and so that is roughly you know a thousand reps a year of looking at opportunities and so i knew that that quickly that was going to become a skill set that i could start feeling comfortable with as well as developing professional network because that's literally part of the job so i said okay those two those two weaknesses are going to be uh somewhat addressed and then short up, short up pretty fast. Yeah. Okay. You have a lot of connections. I'm checking your LinkedIn right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and then, uh, and the third part was I was heading into a new environment and I didn't know, I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know fully what to expect, uh, but I had a good sense that, that the team I was joining at the firm I'm at now, uh, I could trust and were going to look out for me that they weren't going to grind me into a pulp and, and say, Hey, sink or swim. And we'll let you know, you know, what happens. It was more, I had a sense that they were going to mentor me and they were going to let me sort of uh, have room to breathe to figure out my way. Do you feel like it's pretty unique? I mean, for firms to have an origination, a deal origination to kind of split out. I haven't seen it as, as often. Um, is it pretty unique? I think for, for your I, I think it was unique. I think it's getting less unique. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, the market's getting really competitive. And so I think people need sourcing. <laughs> like yeah. You need to have someone full time on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I think it's showing up more and more. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, for the people that are trying to break into private equity, I think it is an attractive role, not only 
to get exposure to it, but also uh, it's a way in where if you're coming late to the game and you're not the guy who did, I don't know, three years at Lincoln and then and then two years of PE and I went to a pedigree MBA and then came back and and now have pedigree and the chops to do a buy side, you know, VP role. Like if you're not that guy, uh, there's still a way to potentially find your way in the industry through business development because it's less about how many reps you did a model and more about how you can talk to people and how you can um, you know, understand what you're trying to sell. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think, um, do you feel like the industry itself like is, is an, an interesting point because it is so competitive now? Do you feel like it's harder? Like, you know, at least on WSO, people are like, oh, the returns are going to come down because there's so many people that the, they're getting bid up and leverage is so high and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it doesn't seem like... <laughs> Maybe with inflation, it's everything's going to keep going up. But <laughs> what is it? What do you have any thoughts specifically around like where things are headed, or you know, it's are you more just like, hey, look, I'm just trying to make a living and <laughs> learn. Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> Which is fine. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I mean, it. I, I, I know if it was me, and I was like my second year, and I'd be like, hey, look, I'm just. It's a good place to be. I'm learning a lot, and you know what happens with the returns. I'm not a partner, so. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I hesitate <laughs> to offer too much advice because I'm only two years into it. So right. it's sort of like, you know, what does this guy know? He's only been doing it for two years. Yeah. Um, I think if I was to offer any insight, uh, as I understand the world before I entered it, there was a time when there wasn't that much private equity around and there were a lot of opportunities around. And so people could sort of pick yeah. and choose when they wanted to invest in certain companies. And I think that that scale has tipped a bit, whereas now there's a lot of private equity around and the same number of opportunities, if not less. And now the, the man who sits at the table and is reactive about opportunities, it could be at a disadvantage, man or woman, could be at a disadvantage because the market's more competitive than maybe they previously assumed. Yeah, we get reached out to all the time. I'm like, what are you, why is WSL? <laughs> I'm like, come on. <laughs> um, really interesting, man. Really interesting story, really interesting background. Um, any kind of final words of wisdom before we call it in terms of looking back at your, your path and um, for people who are in a similar kind of place where you were maybe just a few years earlier than you, any thoughts for them? I mean, first, I, for, I, I assume anyone who's going to watch this will be from a military background. I'd say, you know, do maybe. not hesitate. Yeah. Uh, for those people, do not hesitate to reach out to the military network. I think it's one of the networks that I always heard was a good network, but didn't really know it until I got out of the military. And almost every person in the military will reach, will answer the phone if you ask them to, and will provide whatever support or advice they can give you. And so maybe that's one. And then the second is there's this, there's a stigma in the military that networking is like this, this sticky thing, because we never had to do it in the military. You just did your job. You got, you got evaluated and you moved on and you got promoted or you moved to the next unit. Uh, it's not the same uh, outside of the military, but it, because you're asking someone for help, because you're asking someone for insight, that's not that's not networking. That's just just asking for help. And so, if you think of it as asking for help, or you think of it as trying to learn more, uh, I think it'll be a lot easier to do. That's a really interesting point because, like, everything is so structured in the military. You get you probably get used to like everything being like meritocracy, right? Yeah. Where it's like, hey, if I just do these things, everything's going to be taken care of. And then you get to the real world, the outside world. It's like, no, everything's unfair. <laughs> And, you know, to actually, to get promoted, you could be 10 times better than this other person, but they could get promoted ahead of you because you didn't have a good relationship with X, Y, or Z. Um, and so I think it's a real, it is an eye opener and it's a good, it's a good um, 
point to make from people coming from a military background, especially some someone like yourself who was in it for so long. Right. Yeah, and, and you're at a disadvantage. Like I think people leave the military and they think, you know, I'm a Navy SEAL or I'm a whatever. You know, I have this, I have all these gifts to offer. And the reality is you're behind the curve and you're probably gonna need some help. And so the quicker you can get humble and ask for and help. So yeah, so ask for the help. Yeah. Yeah. Ask for the help. It's a great yeah. lesson. Yeah. I mean, just getting on the phone with as many people as possible, just to because you don't know what you don't know oftentimes. And so like people. You know, same thing with business and with Wall Street Oasis or same thing before. I didn't even know what private equity was when I started banking. Like I already heard of it, but I, I didn't really understand what it was. And this is me coming from a pretty privileged background, you know, you know, nobody in finance, but, you know, within my first year of banking, some one of my fellow analysts was like, yeah, you should go to private equity. I'm like, well, okay, why? And he started like walking me through it. Like without that person, it would have never happened, right? So yeah. I think, you know, I think what a lot of, people and young people will do is they see the universe in front of them and they think it's the whole universe or they see the world in front of them when they should really be asking anybody like the faster you get get at humbling yourself like you said and asking people maybe potentially outside that universe or over here that's kind of in your blind spots i think you just it expands so much in terms of the opportunity set that's there for you and and can dramatically change the trajectory of your career and your life so um let's let's end on that note yeah, thanks, Pat. You have more legitimacy, more credibility than I do. So yeah, I appreciate yeah. the support. Yeah. <laughs> All good, man. I really appreciate your story. Thanks for coming on. Of course, Pat. Thanks for the time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.